This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Chizani from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Fellowship Match Advice, sponsored by your friends at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And it's Editor-in-Chief, fresh from her Antarctic adventure, Dr. What? Michelle Lynn from University what? of California, San Francisco. Thank you. Hello, hello. I'm so excited. It's so timely. Hola, Xinjiao, and uh, Konnichiwa, all of that. All I'm of that. I'm here. All of totally that. Totally different continent. Just oh my gosh. Go. Here you are back in the Bay Area. I know. I was just in the Arctic Norways, Fallberg, and uh, I'm ready to absorb more knowledge. Oh, my gosh. So How exciting and so appropriate for today's episode. Yes. We're now in season three. What? Of EM what? Fellowship Match Advice, our famous spinoff series of Allium's EM Match Advice series. And today's topic is entitled EM Match Advice for Global Health Fellowships. So, so appropriate. Michelle is back from her adventure. And to offer their sage advice on matching to a global health fellowship, we have three outstanding fellowship directors with us. Dr. Christiana Kaufman from Wayne State University. Hi, Christiana. Hello. Dr. Rebecca Walker from Stanford University, just down the hallway from me. And Dr. Hani Mofawi from Yale University. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So we're going to jump right into the discussion with our first panelist, Dr. Kaufman. And I always like to start these episodes off by asking the simple question, why would someone do extra training and choose to do, in this case, a global health fellowship? Fantastic question. Obviously, the best place to start. I get a lot of residents who ask me that same question. They have this idea that global health, they can do a locums job or part-time work and uh, on the side do global health. But just like any other fellowship, toxicology, ultrasound, EMS, global health has a full set of skills that you need to understand and master before you can go out in the field skills like uh, public health, human rights, travel and tropical medicine, program management and analysis. I think what Christiana is is pointing out here is that we get uh, exposure to a lot of these different subjects during residency, but you're not going to get proficiency during residency. Uh, You know, you might learn, you know, a few tidbits about malaria, or you might learn how to evaluate an article or to do, you know, research, or you might learn uh, basics of public health. But it certainly won't mean that you graduate from a three or four year residency ready to jump in and create a residency in another country and a different culture or to set up an EMS system or to research like a really nuanced global health problem or to respond to a humanitarian crisis. Right. So I think the part of the problem with global health and part of the or global emergency medicine, I should say, and trying to encapsulate it all in one answer is that it really is broad. But at the same time, uh, fellowship gives you the opportunity to actually get exposure to the parts of it that you are most interested in to make you an effective practitioner in the field. Yeah. Now, you know what? I think that's a common theme across all of our fellowship match advice series, which is residency can only give you a little glimpse into the skills, experiences, knowledge set 
that you can get in toxicology, ultrasound, education, and that includes global health. There's a whole, literally a whole world out there of <laughs> skills and knowledge you need to know. You got so that? Good. So you good. That oh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, and I think one thing that you mentioned, you know, a lot of physicians do end up working in global health and might volunteer on a project, but I think the fellowship really gives you the skills to be the person to design those projects and have other physicians maybe help you and volunteer on those projects, but to really design and build a project that the fellow is interested in. Um, certainly there's a lot of volunteer opportunities for doctors, but I think fellowships really allow you to be a leader in that. Can you guys discuss a little bit about the structure of a, well, and, and maybe we should even begin with the title, right? So I titled this Global Health Fellowships, and I've heard others talk about global emergency medicine or international health or international emergency medicine. First, tell me what the preferred title for this fellowship program is. And then I'd really like to understand the structure of these fellowship programs. What's the average length of training, options for curricula, that, that sort of thing? Uh, so the preferred terminology these days is more global health fellowships. It used to be international emergency medicine fellowships, and some have a, a combined uh, global health and international EM fellowship. Uh, most fellowships are about two years if you do not have an advanced degree, like a master's in public health. There are some programs who, if you already have an advanced degree, um, a master's in public health, you can do a one-year option. Or if you have an MPH already and you want to get a master's in something else or a tropical medicine certificate, um, then you can still do a two-year program. Um, and there are some programs that are just one year and don't require a master's in public health. There's really something out there for everybody. Do they come with certifications or is it simply a, a non-ACGME fellowship diploma? So uh, it is non-ACGME at this time, um, but that's where the extra certificate really is a benefit. Getting a master's in public health or a master's in education kind of strengthens your skill set and opens a lot of doors. You're right that it is a non-ACGME fellowship diploma. And as Christiana mentioned, many programs include some sort of additional degree, whether it's an MPH or a master's of science or tropical medicine. To my mind, this is a benefit. Like this is a feature, not a bug. Being non-ACGME is what allows most of the fellowship programs to function because what they do is you're, you've got, the fellows are operating as junior attendings and they're able to work as attendings in, in the emergency department and still have the flexibility to pursue a degree program, to spend weeks, if not months, in the field at a time to really become the junior global health expert. If you were on an ACGME timeline where you had a certain number of hours that you had to be in specific places at all times, it really would not give you the flexibility to do the types of global health work that the current fellowships are offering. And are there any specific certifications? I guess my, my other question is... Um you know, I've heard like the London School uh, offer certifications that, you know, aren't a degree, but there's something else that's formal that fellows have pursued around the country. A number of programs uh, have certain short courses that they have as mandatory. So one example is the humanitarian response intensive course through the Harvard Humanitarian oh. Initiative. And the International Committee of Red Cross has the HELP course, Emergencies in Large Populations. So those are two of the courses that are kind of mandated in most fellowships. Um, some require a short course in tropical medicine, not necessarily taking the, the full board certification for tropical mm -hmm. medicine. And then there's a smattering of other ultrasound or um, wilderness medicine courses that some require as well. 
Great. I want to jump in here with a question, which is, I love that you're getting a little bit more granular about one to two year programs, but what does the a sample year kind of look like? Are we talking about one out of 12 months you're traveling? Is it six out of 12 months? Are you doing a lot of coursework? What does that kind of look like at your shop and maybe at all three of your shops? Explain to me more about that. A lot of the programs are very different in terms of what they offer. Our program in Detroit, um, it's approximately quarterly. You're going to be doing a two to four week elective abroad. And the rest of the time, you're going to be uh, at the shop working clinically at the DMC, Detroit Medical Center, and completing your MPH. Um, Even though you're only working eight to 10 shifts per month. There's a lot of coursework for the MPH uh, that you need to complete and to buy that time down so you can prepare for your international elective, be abroad and then write up and summarize. That's a, a lot of intensive work kind of around those two to four weeks. So even though it's less clinical time, it's still a pretty busy schedule. Stanford, the same thing. We do about two to three months abroad. And the longest trips would be about a month. And a lot of trips are two to four weeks. And as far as the certificate courses, what I will generally advise fellows is that if a certificate course really helps them do a deep dive into something that they want to learn during their fellowship, then it's a good addition to what you're already working on with your fellowship directors. If it is sort of a 180 degree turn from what the fellowship projects are. Like if your project is not in an area with tropical medicine and you're taking you're taking three months to learn that, you can also do that after a fellowship. So I think as long as it, it adds to what you're getting out of the fellowship and then that makes sense. But you can always get a certificate course to after the fellowship. There's a lot of difference uh, in the various programs based on whether people choose to do a one year or two year fellowship and kind of what experiences they've already had coming into it. The program at Yale is actually bizarrely 26 months, (laughs) so just over two years. And that has to do with the fact that we do our uh, degree work through the London School in London. So the, the semesters are offset. The typical applicant is spending three months a year in the field, three to four months a year in the field, but a significant amount of time probably three months, an additional three months a year in London uh, at the London School, whether they're doing it as part of their master's program or the diploma program. So that's a fair bit of time out of the country and certainly a lot of time in the field. The rest of the time, they're back home uh, here at Yale doing clinical shifts in the department or they're doing short courses like the help course or other short courses. I think the general structure of a global health fellowship will vary a lot based on where your degree program is taking place. So if you are a place that is doing a distance degree program, uh, some uh, fellowships have their set up like ours where you're doing your degree away from where your clinical site is, uh, then you've got this distinct advantage of when you're a student, you're nerding out and hanging out with professors and meeting global health practitioners and and really doing a deep dive that way. And when you're working clinically, you get to work clinically and just uh, focus on that. If you are doing it at your home shop, then you're frequently a student during the week and then an ER doc at the nights and the weekends, uh, which is kind of most of our lives, as we all know. You know, I always like colleagues who work in the field and can Skype me from the field. And I just think global health is cool because they work in the field. I think that's neat. It's an extra level of coolness. All right, let's uh, let's move on to our next panelist, Dr. Walker from Stanford. 
And I've been waiting for my opportunity to just ask you anything in the world live on a camera. So this is it. So I want to talk with you specifically about jobs. And in other episodes... Oh, don't waste it. If it's anything in the world... No, no, no. It's going to be so good. She doesn't know what's going to hit her yet. In other episodes of Fellowship Match Advice, I liken fellowship training to a PhD. So PhDs are meant for people who really can't live without being an expert in a certain area, right? They just, they need to have that training or they will not self-actualize during their, their time on this earth. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make more money. In fact, they make, might make less money than if they just stopped at a master's degree. And, you know, fellowship training could be very similar despite what fellowship you pick. So um, I want to talk about jobs. So, you know, if someone's going to go through all of this, what does the other end of the tunnel look like for them? What job opportunities exist and where? It is similar to that, to getting a PhD or at least to a postdoc position, especially in that you end up making less money likely if you're going into global health than if you just went into the community emergency medicine. And I think that is in general true for physicians who work in public health. And so I see that as a positive because it recruits a really interesting group of people who there's not a lot of people going into public health to make a lot of money. Um, and so I like that group and tend to like kind of gravitate towards those people. So I think it self-selects for a really interesting group. That said, improving emergency care in the international setting with low and middle income nations, there's they, we will have job security in that for the rest of our lifetimes um, because there's a lot of opportunity. And so different jobs that exist outside of academics. There's a lot of private companies that want a global health consultant. And so maybe that is to collaborate with international groups or figure out which endeavors will be useful to them. But even in academics, you know, I think there's a lot of room for hiring. A lot of a lot of academic places have one or two faculty members in their global health group. And the addition of one or two more can add a lot of synergy, actually. There's a lot of different job opportunities, including the nonprofit sector with large international nonprofits that might be doing research and have have things that you know a university might not have, like a country office that can manage giant international grants. And so being adding some technical expertise to these various groups, nonprofits, governments. So a lot of countries are working at the level of the Ministry of Health to design their emergency care systems and to advance emergency care in their country. And in that way, emergency medicine development quickly becomes at the national level, because really what we're doing while we can improve a emergency care in one hospital, then if you're improving care in one hospital, then all the patients are going to come to that hospital. So you might as well think on a system level. And so it quickly becomes very interesting at a policy level um, with the ministries of health and international funding towards global health endeavors with healthcare workforce being named as a priority by the WHO um, in the last couple of years. I think just improving the education for healthcare providers. And that doesn't necessarily limit our projects to physicians. There's a lot, most people providing emergency care globally are not physicians. And so a lot of our projects may drift into lay healthcare workforce or nursing. All of those vast projects, 
I think it is something that a global health fellow can add to, can add some expertise. And so I think there's a lot of different roles. There's definitely a lot of job opportunities. Yeah, this is kind of a, I think, a golden age for people who want to go into this. Rebecca kind of laid out the the really broad set of different opportunities. But traditionally, emergency medicine has always been dominated by other specialties, originally in this country and then now in other countries, right? But we're at a point where people are starting to realize, oh, just because I have a surgeon or a cardiologist doesn't mean I'm prepared to handle the broad uh, set of emergencies that are coming in. So for the first time, WHO has an emergency care office, and that is being headed up by an emergency physician, you know, Terry Reynolds. Repeatedly with every global health outbreak, people are realizing, wow, we really need to pay attention to emergency care systems. So like Rebecca Walker said uh, just a few moments ago, we really need to identify experts that know what they're doing on the front lines and at the same time are kind of like the Swiss army knives of the health system, right? Like uh, emergency medicine uh, graduates in general are very adaptable, but they don't necessarily have the experience of working in a global environment. Once you go through fellowship training and you kind of, you know, have cut your teeth in maybe a low resource setting, you understand how an international organization works because you got to spend some time there during your fellowship. And something as mundane as just making a connection to somebody in one of these organizations really sets you up to become that multifunctional expert uh, with a lot of these not purely academic groups, whether they're NGOs or humanitarian organizations or the WHO, et cetera. Well, great. So it sounds like it's not a very saturated market at all that, you know, unlike maybe some of these other fellowships that our grads are looking at, you know, there's there's already that ultrasound person at every hospital. We really have to think, or at least academic hospital, we really have to think where are the jobs um, for some of these grads. It's not the case necessarily for global health. And in specific, I'm curious about global health directors. I think a lot of residents only understand what they see in front of them and they see that their residency may have that one or two people who are the global health faculty and you know what are their jobs and how you know are there is there room to join them what do they do on a daily basis what what's their skill set need to be so i think global health directors for an academic group are there to help faculty residents and fellows and really even just your own department if you're if they are engaged in some international endeavors decide what opportunities are worth exploring and sort of helping to vet whether a partnership has what it takes to successfully complete a project and i think having that experience of seeing projects go well and seeing some projects go poorly having someone who has that experience help vet through hey i got this random email from you know, Guatemala, is this something I should explore? Or maybe should we Skype with them next and then see where this is going? And they can be part of that conversation with the residents or the fellows. I think involving them in those conversations early will help residents and faculty and fellows sort of be more successful in the end. And then asking the right questions. So if you're ready to do a project and you think you have a partnership that will work, what questions do you need to ask that partner? You know, how do you go about finding funding? What do you even need funding for? I think the global health directors, one thing they're really good at 
is figuring out how to do things with very little funding. And so it might be surprising to you how little funding some things take. Kind of having that eye on the deliverables and funding and where these goals are and helping you over communicate with international partners about your goals, your priorities, their goals, their priorities, and make sure that there's a really good alignment. Well, what's interesting about your answer, right, is that fellowship gives you skills, expertise, and content, and you need those skills and expertise to be able to do everything you just said, right? And you're not going to get that from a couple of medical missions abroad, one during med school, one during residency, and then think that you can somehow, because you're the only person who went on a medical mission, go become the global health director at a group. Like it's completely irresponsible to think that you can complete that level of um, nuanced work without any formal training. And I think that's a really important message for prospective candidates to hear. Yeah. And then there's also, you can be the global health director for other things other than just an academic EM group, right? And so there's nonprofits might have a global health director, everything from kind of like the mom and pop faith-based group with a mission to giant research corporations that want a global health medical director. And so, or even a private private companies like Medtronics wants a global health director to kind of help them explore and figure out which endeavors to, to follow through on. So one of the uh, main things that we've been working on in our program here is not just looking at the fellowship, but looking at the medical school that we're affiliated with in the global health programming that they're working on. And we realized uh maybe they need to move to the next level. So we've been working with the medical school to make sure when they look back, they are working in the right way uh, and not the medical mission uh, model that has been going on for years and years. And then also global health training, you're right, building that into the residency. I mean, all residents in EM do have exposure to EMS and toxicology and ultrasound. So one of our main focuses right now is bringing in some of the global health training into the EM curriculum um, using the global local model. We're in Detroit and we have a lot of health disparities. And so a lot of these program management techniques and things that we're talking about internationally, we start at home and kind of explore ideas and learning there. And then that helps broaden to some of the international sites that we have as well. You know, Mike, I have, I'm just going to butt in real quick. So sure. you mentioned that I, I love the talk about the long-term vision about what are the different job uh, possibilities, which I didn't know there were that many different options. But thinking back on the level of a resident, like let's say I've done one medical mission as a med student, one two-weeker in Honduras during residency, and I think I might enjoy global health. How differentiated do you need to be to kind of join a global health fellowship. Like I, I want to be part of an NGO that works at this clinic within Uganda. And that is my long-term vision. And thus I'm qualified to apply for a fellowship. Like how pluripotent can you be, or do you have to be super differentiated before you join a fellowship? Most applicants to the fellowships have had some experience, mostly in global health, but sometimes that international or global experience was from a whole nother part of their life. So maybe they've demonstrated the health part of their interest by going to being a doctor. And before that, they were working in international development. And actually, those kind of additive experiences mean a lot and can be very interesting. Yeah, most people, by the time that they have applied to a fellowship, that goes with undergrad, living abroad when they were younger, through medical school and residency. I think if 
for some reason they haven't gotten around to doing anything abroad by that point, then we would probably ask, you know, why is fellowship the year for this now? But I think most people have had some small experience, but sometimes not much, you know, even just an interest and they've spent a couple of weeks abroad or they have a connection to a place. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think people have a misconception, uh, probably based on everything in the, in the market is kind of like hearsay and passed down from your mentors. Like we train in like a apprenticeship model. And so a lot of times people are getting advice from faculty, maybe faculty who didn't do global health, but are reflecting back on what their friends told them when they were residents, right? There are many more fellowship programs now than existed even just five, six years ago. While certainly there are the people applying who already have two uh, additional degrees and have published a dozen papers in global health. But there's also a lot of people that just had that one experience in medical school. Maybe they went to a residency that didn't allow them to do a global health elective, but they've, they've had a strong connection and they've demonstrated interest over time. And, you know, what I tell people is uh, your global health fellowship should be your springboard. It is your launching pad into your career as a junior expert in something. Uh, and that's probably valid even for for any fellowship. So it's okay if you haven't been abroad for six months during your EM residency. You're an EM resident. Nobody expects that. The idea is that you're going to get just have some demonstrated interest. And really, the reason for that is because a fellowship director wants to know that when they make a one or two year commitment to somebody, that that person is not going to just flake out after six weeks, right? That that person is going to be somebody that is really interested, really committed, able to shoulder the responsibilities and sometimes hardships of being in the field for prolonged periods of time or away from family and uh, facing up to new challenges. But beyond that, there's really more programs than there are applicants and have been for the last three or four years consistently. So I, I think there's a program out there, an excellent program out there for almost every serious global EM applicant who wants to pursue this as their career. Yeah, I I think it's important not to conflate messages. You know, there's a lovely set of individuals out there who want to do medical missions throughout their life. And and that's really wonderful. I think those can make for great fellowship applicants if you happen to have had that opportunity during medical school or residency. Those experiences don't necessarily prepare you with the same skill sets that fellowship will. And I think that's the overarching message here is that these certainly are still very competitive applicants for a fellowship. Unlike me, where my parents brought me to Montreal, Quebec, Niagara Falls, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I should be the Minister of Health for Canada, right? I mean, it wasn't the same experience as Dr. Walker was talking about. All right, but this is all a great segue into our final segment with Dr. Bofawi about the application process. You spoke a little bit in your last answer about the competitiveness of an applicant for Global Health Fellowship, but kind of walk us through the whole application process. What's the timeline? How do you apply? When is there a match? All of that. The application process is uh, going to be slightly different uh, for every program because we don't have one consolidated match. But what we do have is a first offer date. There is something called the International Emergency Medicine Fellowship Consortium, where it is a gentle women's and gentlemen's agreement that is uh, slightly formalized amongst all of the programs or almost all of the programs in North America, where we agree not to 
make formal offers. As part of being uh, in the consortium, we agree not to make formal offers to residents before our no offer date is the second Monday in November. And everything works backward from there. So the logic behind that is there are some incredibly talented applicants and with more proliferation of programs, there's more and more competition for top applicants and maybe internal applicants. And you don't want to disadvantage somebody who happens to be at a global health or at a program that has global health from looking elsewhere, because really the best fit for them may be in a different program, different city, different uh, part of the country altogether. So we want to give everybody a chance to see what's out there, learn a little bit more about what the different fellowships offer before they make what we hope is an informed decision. So working backwards from November, most programs are interviewing in September and October of, of the year, final year of residency, whether that's your EM3 or EM4 year. Most applicants are submitting their applications over that summer. So starting in June, July, prior to that. So what that means is in the first two or three years of your residency, you will have done some things within the limit, limitations of your residencies, electives, and, and other and other experience times that you have available to you to demonstrate that you have some interest in developing into a, a global health practitioner. So if it's doing research, it might have been uh, one of these global slash local programs. Uh, sometimes people do work with resettled populations uh, right here at home. We're seeing less and less refugees uh, resettled, but but certainly uh, we have some where there's a big migrant crisis on the border in the South where uh, a lot of residents have been involved as part of that. I think all of these are relevant experiences that people can do, which demonstrate that they've been thoughtful in their career choice prior to their application. Michelle, what questions do you have? I have oh so many questions, no. uh, but related to global health. Well, you know what? I'm actually just reflecting all of this, and I'm so glad to hear that it's not a deal breaker, the fact that you don't come in with an MPH. It's not a deal breaker that you haven't completely differentiated on a project and a site, and it allows you to gain an, an additional skill set uh, with this one to two year fellowship. But I do want to know, you know, for instance, thinking back to the mindset of the resident, let's say you're the, the second year resident and you really do think that global health fellowship may be in your future. What advice would you guys have to these residents who are aspiring? Like, what's the best way for them to get involved and show that they're committed to a fellowship at your program? One good way for residents to demonstrate their interest in global health is to get involved with some of the societies that are out there in the chapters and committees. So each of the big EM societies has an international or global health uh, section or committee. So attending those meetings, getting to know people there, joining the listservs, I think that's a good way. Um, and then reading, there's a lot of good starter books out there, The Nuts and Bolts of Global Emergency Medicine by Janet Lynn and uh, John Roberts et al. Some of those texts are fantastic to just start looking at what's out there and then talk with people at your shop and they'll connect you to sites that you might be interested in or different topics that you might be interested in learning about. Another way is to involve yourself with any faculty that might be doing some global health work that sounds interesting to you. And you know, even though projects sometimes seem very big and like, how could I get involved as an intern because I have all these internships to do? I think you'd be surprised to know how many little pieces of the project 
maybe that aren't getting done because we didn't have funding to do. And so if someone comes to a meeting about one of our global health projects and they hear something that sounds interesting to them, we've had interns that have said, oh, you know, that that's something I can do remotely and I can work at from Palo Alto while I'm in all these, I can't travel during intern year, but maybe I can contribute to the project. And by the time I'm a second or third year, be able to go and travel and do a bit, a larger piece of the puzzle. And so even just learning and going to meetings to hear about the details of some of the global health projects is a good way to start getting involved and to start thinking about how you might want to contribute in the future. Yeah, I would say if you're fortunate enough to be at a program that has global health, then show up to those meetings, hear what, what the faculty are working on, and just ask, how can I help? I think uh, residents frequently want to sit down. They want to talk about their interests. That's great. But really what gets the attention is like putting in the legwork. So if you're somewhere where you have access to people that are working on projects, a lot of these projects are operating on incredibly thin budgets if they have any budget at all. When you show up and say, how can I help? These are the things that I know how to do and I would like, I would like to be useful. Then that's the way. I happen to have gone to a residency that did not have anybody that did global health and did not have a ton of elective time. And I, I stalked the meetings that were the international meetings that were available. I called around. I drove up to meet with uh, faculty members after their shift, like several hours away from where I was training, because that was what was available. I think there's a whole host of opportunities now that weren't around 10 or 15 years ago. Really availing yourselves of that uh, early on, being honest and modest about what you're going to be able to accomplish uh, within limited time as a, as a junior resident, and then delivering on the things that you say that you're going to do. You can do a, a whole lot of it just from the, the comfort of your own home. Yeah, I think that's really good advice about being persistent in your interests, because we do hear a lot of, when I'm a third year, I want to go on a trip abroad and work on your project or something. And we probably, the faculty are not going to remember and then chase down the resident. And so, but we're also, it's great to just email again or contact again and kind of be persistent because that kind of separates you as a resident from someone who's serious about global health versus maybe someone who's trying to travel for some anywhere. All right. Well, panel, this has been a great discussion and I hope the residents are very interested in our final section of the panel to hear not about global health in aggregate, but specifically about your individual programs. Because I, we've heard some teasers, all three of you gave us teasers, but now it's time to tell Michelle and I something we don't know about your program. And we're gonna start with Dr. Kaufman and the program at Detroit Medical Center, Wayne State University. Dr. Kaufman, tell us something we don't know about your uh, fellowship program. Uh, so we are one of the newer programs on the block. And despite that, we actually have a couple of really awesome sites. So I've worked with Health Frontiers in Lao PDR for the last nine years. And last year, we started the first EM residency program in Laos. And we have eight current residents and we're recruiting for our second class of residents. Uh, so EM development is one of our strong suits in Detroit. And the other big shift that we're going through is global health just got put on the radar again at our university. We had a very strong program about uh, 10 years ago, um, but things kind of webbed and flowed. And right now we're 
starting Global Health again. So it's a really exciting time to be in Detroit. Detroit itself is making a comeback. I've been waiting for this my entire life. So Detroit is on the up and up. And I think our program has got a lot to offer. It's fantastic. So come check it out. So much renaissance happening in Detroit. I love it. Check out Detroit Medical Center. And uh, let's hear from Dr. Walker. Now, I literally work. I work down the hall. So you're going to really have to try hard to tell me something I know about Stanford program. One thing that is new at Stanford is we have another fellowship with, as you were talking about local populations, um, we have a new fellowship called the Social Emergency Medicine Fellowship. And that is run by a previous global health fellow at Stanford. And so that's kind of an interesting new connection that we have as far as our ability to work those populations. Another thing that I find very exciting is, Hani, over there on the West Coast, there's a lot of global health on the, on the East Coast. It's been interesting for me and for our group to work with UCSF and Highland and um, USC and try to get some global health action over here on the West Coast. And I think collaborating that way has been really exciting. And even with Hani mentioning the application process, you know, being kind of a gentleman and gentlewoman's agreement, it is truly a coalition of the willing. We are kind of a, an overall just national group that kind of works together really well. And so I think here we're used to that a little bit because we have so many faculty on staff that have considered global health as their focus. So we have about eight to 10 faculty that focus on global health. And so I think extending that to the larger group of fellowships is something that is important for the residents to know that we really truly do work on a lot of different projects together. And we want the residents to find the program that matches best with their interest. Um, that's kind of a priority for all the fellowship directors as well as for the residents. So um, I think we're one thing that we'd like to do is kind of help applicants find this program for them. Yeah, and residents, you'll get to learn to surf from Dr. Walker. She has so many skill sets. So check out Stanford University. And lastly, we are going to hear from our fellowship director at Yale, Dr. Mafawi. I already teased that it's a 26-month pro, uh, program, so that's a little odd, but that probably not the most interesting. I, I really think that the connection with the London School is a tremendous uh, benefit to the Yale program and the focused time that people get to spend when they're studying, they're really studying. When they're when they're in their field, they're focused on their project work. When they're back here clinically, they're integrated. We've done a lot with virtual meetings. So whether people are in rural Uganda or whether they are at, in London or whether they're at home, we have our meetings uh, kind of online in this same setup so that we're all we all stay connected. The Yale. Uh, Department of EM uh, was, I believe still is, like one of the most, if not the most funded uh, research EM department. And it really is part of the character of the department as a whole. And we've tried, worked hard to make it part of the character of our global health section. So in addition to the fellowship, we have the four faculty members that are the core members uh, in our section that are all independent researchers in global health. And despite the fact that our degree entails, you know, expertise in tropical medicine. None of us are actually focused on that as our primary research area. So the fellows that come get exposure to Christine Gurria, who's really focused on global NCDs. I work in injury in low middle income countries and, you know, humanitarian crises, specifically in the Middle East and, and uh, North Africa. And Eleanor Reed's uh, really looking at 
palliative care as like a new frontier in global health and kind of how to integrate that. Even in places that don't have emergency medicine, most of the world gets episodic care. So they, they show up to see a doctor when they're sick or injured. And the doctor is frequently somebody in an emergency unit somewhere. And it's frequently that's the only physician that they're going to initially interact with. So all of these things, I think, are interesting directions for, for Global EM. And we're, we're excited that applicants get exposure to all of them. Yeah, I mean, you get to go study in London. So that alone would make me want to apply to your program. So students, check out the residents, check out the Yale program. With that, thank you guys for uh, doing this panel. I really hope you have a wonderful application season and good luck to each of your programs. Thanks, Michelle, for hosting us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alium podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Alium.com. Thanks for joining us.